quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. In for Julia Chatterley, this is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID closure... China locks down a city of more than a million people. CEO convicted. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes found guilty of fraud. And China controversies. Tesla and Walmart are the latest U.S. companies caught up in tensions over Xinjiang. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. It's the second trading day of the new year, and we are just 30 minutes away from the market open. U.S. stocks are set to gain after a record-breaking start to 2022. On Monday, the S&P 500 and the Dow closed at historic highs. Apple briefly became the world's first $3 trillion company, and Tesla jumped over 13%. In Europe, the new year brings fresh optimism as well. Stocks there are up on hopes that Omicron's economic hit can be kept in check. Encouraging December jobs numbers from Germany and Spain help make that case. In London, travel and leisure stocks are leading the FTSE higher as investors bet that 2022 will be the year the world finally reopens. Let's get right to the drivers. And we are heading into a tough January in the fight against Omicron. Here in the U.S., the seven-day rolling average of new daily cases now stands at record 480,000. More than 103,000 people are hospitalized with coronavirus. It's the first time in nearly four months that the total in the U.S. has reached six figures. European health systems are also struggling. In Ireland, nearly 4,000 frontline workers are out on COVID-related leave as hospitalizations soar more than 40 percent. And in China, another test of the zero-COVID strategy. A city of more than one million people has been placed under lockdown after just two cases were reported on Sunday and they had no symptoms. Let's bring in Paula Hancox. She joins us now. Paula, what's the latest? Well, Alison, this really is the proof that uh, that we didn't really need, that China is continuing with that zero COVID policy. That's certainly not going to change this side of the Beijing Winter Olympics, only a month away now. But this is quite remarkable. This is the city of Yuzhou. There's about 1.2 million residents within this city in central Henan province. And they did, as you say, have two asymptomatic cases reported on Sunday and they locked down the city. Only essential services are open in that city for example, supermarkets or medicine uh, production. And even the people that work there have to prove they have a negative test before they're allowed through the door. Schools, public transport, all shut down. And then elsewhere in Xi'an, this is a city of some 13 million residents, which has been uh, in lockdown in China since December 23rd. We're hearing some disturbing reports from Chinese social media. Uh, Some residents and loved ones of residents who are in that lockdown uh, saying that they are struggling 
to find food, to find groceries, and some struggling to find uh, medical attention. Uh, one Weibo, uh, which is a Chinese social media user, saying that uh, his father had had a heart attack, that he had been refused entrance to hospitals because he was within the lockdown area. By the time he got medical attention, it was too late, and he passed away. We have been seeing on social media uh, many reports like that. Now the, the municipal government officials say they acknowledge there is a problem. They know、uh, that they need to get food and medical assistance to people quicker, and they are endeavouring to do that. Alison. Let's turn to India, Paula, because it's reporting tens of thousands of new COVID infections, and now the concern is that, you know, as the next few weeks go by, the country could wind up finding itself in the grip of a new wave of infections. Yes,、yeah, so、what we're seeing in Delhi, in the、uh, the, the capital territory, territory of Delhi, they've now introduced. Uh, a weekend curfew, so they're asking people not to go out on a Saturday and Sunday to try and stem the outbreak、uh, of these、uh, these cases that we're seeing. But we have heard from the health minister there、uh, that at this point that hasn't translated into a worrying amount of hospitalisations.、Uh, but they are concerned that there may just be a lag on that. But what we're seeing in different states is something very different. In Uttar Pradesh, for example, this is one of five states which has an election coming up earlier this year,、uh, and we are. Seeing massive political gatherings,、uh, we're seeing one of the ministers there saying that、uh, that Omicron is weak; it's not a concern, but you should take precautions anyway. And he was saying this at a massive political gathering with thousands of people listening,、uh, many of them not masked, not social distancing.、Uh, and we have been seeing this recurring throughout、uh, different states. So certainly, the concern now is that as this、uh, political campaigning picks up, we've also seen Prime Minister. To Narendra Modi at、uh, some of these rallies and speaking,、uh, that we could see some super spreader、uh, events coming forward. In fact, the、uh, the Delhi Chief Minister has just test- tested、uh, positive as well. He says he has mild symptoms, but that is just after he was speaking at one of these massive political events as well. Alison. Okay, Paula Hancocks. Thanks for all of your reporting. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is facing up to 20 years in prison after being found guilty of fraud. Holmes falsely claimed her company had revolutionized blood testing and could detect conditions like cancer and diabetes from just a few drops. CNN's Camilla Bernal reports. Elizabeth Holmes leaving a San Jose courtroom, knowing she's likely headed to prison. Have anything you want to say? The jury finding her guilty on three federal counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. For lying to investors about her blood testing technology, but the jury also found her not guilty on four additional charges in relation to patients. Jurors did not reach an agreement on three other wire fraud charges pertaining to investors. She faces 20 years in prison for each charge, plus fines and restitution. At some point in the deliberation, jurors on both sides, the not guilty and guilty camps. Said something to the effect of, "Look, this is how I feel, and you guys aren't going to convince me otherwise." Prosecutors argued her company, Theranos, promised a wide range of blood tests using just a few drops of blood, but did not deliver. So this is the little tubes that we collect the the samples in. They argued that Holmes lied about the accuracy of the blood test, the capabilities of her technology, the company's relationship with the military, and its validation from pharmaceutical companies. 
So we saw kind of the charisma, um, the charm, the way in which she likely spoke to investors in her meetings with them, um, you know, when she was pitching the company. She captured the attention and money of powerful and wealthy investors, among them former secretaries of state Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, former Secretary of Defense General Jim Mattis, the family of former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and media tycoon Rupert Murdoch. She was hailed on the cover of magazines um, as the next Steve Jobs. Uh, she claimed to have revolutionized blood testing. But the prosecution proved otherwise, and they're hoping to do it again in the trial of her longtime partner and CEO of Theranos, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, who is potentially facing decades in prison for the same charges. The trials were separated after Holmes made bombshell accusations of sexual and emotional abuse against Balwani. He has denied those allegations and has pleaded not guilty to the federal wire fraud and conspiracy charges. And in the meantime, the darling of Silicon Valley with a vision of the future, now facing the consequences of her past. Camila Bernal, CNN, Los Angeles. Let's switch to a tech player that's definitely the real deal. Apple becoming the world's first $3 trillion company. That's bigger than the GDP of most countries, including the UK. Wedbush Managing Director and Analyst Dan Ives is here with us now. Apple, I know, Dan, is one of your uh, creme de la creme companies you like to talk about. But this is really one of these milestones that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. I mean, the market cap of Apple right now is greater than... Walmart, Ford, Netflix, here on the screen, all the companies, it's bigger than all of these combined. So the question I have for you, you know, what kind of moment is this for Apple? How would you characterize it? It's a watershed moment. And I think it just shows what's happened for Apple in, in terms of this renaissance of growth that's happening in Cupertino. And it's not just about iPhones, it's services and the whole ecosystem. And I think we're still only in the sort of middle innings of this playing out. Cook continues to have the golden touch, and that's why I don't think this stops at $3 trillion. You know, I find it interesting that Apple is earning this title even after the company, I remember, had to deal with supply chain issues, even cutting its iPhone production goal by 10 million units, and this happening in October because of these supply constraints. What got it here to this tech titan status? But their back was against the wall. I mean, it's not just a supply chain issue. It's also China, which continues to be a core market. They've had to navigate that tightrope. You know, I think a lot of it just comes down. To, they have an unparalleled install base, 1.7 billion iOS devices. And their ability to monetize is really unmatched. And if you look what's happened on the iPhone cycle, I'll call it a super cycle that's played out. But it's that services business. That That's an $80 billion revenue stream. We think that's worth $1.5 trillion. That's been a big part of the re-rating as the street has further appreciated the Apple story. So you know how back in the old days it was all about what is Apple's latest gadget? That's how Apple is going to keep on making its mark. Is that still the story for Apple to keep it going? Is, is that latest thing that it could create? Well, it's a great point. I do think the, the iPhone cycle will continue to play out. And that, and that will start to normalize, we've seen. But I think the next product cycle is going to be Apple Glass. The AR, VR headset and that comes out in the summer, goes for sale potentially in the fall. 
I think that could add you know, 20 hours per share to the stock. And then we believe it's a matter of when, not if, in terms of Apple Car by 2025. It's about further monetizing. When you look back at some of the demises of the Nokias and the Blackberries, they were at the peak, but they couldn't monetize. You look at Apple, 97% of Apple users, they stay with Apple for the rest mm-hmm. of you know, their life in terms of as an ecosystem. Do you think this kind of valuation for Apple and other tech titans pose a risk to the market because it's just a few big companies controlling the fate of the S&P 500? I mean, should investors watch out for that crowding at the top? Look, I think the strong have gotten stronger. And and I think you've seen that during the pandemic. And even though the Fed continue, will raise rates and you'll see some valuation sensitivity, I believe tech continues to lead us higher. It's a fourth industrial revolution playing out. And that's why Apple is where it is, because of what we're seeing, especially with 5G. Another favorite of yours to talk about is Tesla hitting its own milestone on deliveries for the fourth quarter. You describe it in an interesting way. I think something about a trophy. <laughs> well, I mean, this was this was a quarter that I think Musk and the team will, will frame uh, you know, at their new headquarters in Austin. If you think about that chip shortage, which hit all their automakers, it was a jaw dropper in terms of what they deliver. And that's why the stock reacted like it is. You look at this green tidal wave playing out in EVs. Right now, at least in EV land, it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. And that was really an explanation point in terms of the fourth quarter. What does Tesla's performance tell you just about the EV space in 2022 in general? I think it's going to be a massive year for EVs. I think that a lot of you look at stalwarts like Ford, GM, of course, VW in Europe. We're just starting to see this transformation. I view it as a big transformation to the auto industry since the 1950s. A very positive sign for EVs going 2022. All right, Dan Ives with Wedbush Securities. Great getting your perspective today. Enjoy Thank it. Thank you. All right, Tesla courting criticism by opening a showroom in the Xinjiang region in China. Allegations that China commits systemic Human rights abuses in the region have sparked tensions between Washington and Beijing in recent years. Paula Monica has the details now. So, so uh, we're seeing Tesla, um, you know, having this big presence in China. It's spent years making inroads with Beijing. But, but Paul, this new showroom in the region really proves to be controversial, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, Allison. There are a lot of people who will criticize Tesla because of the fact that this new showroom is in a region where the Chinese government has been accused of supporting genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority in that region. And obviously that is something that I think you're going to have many human rights activists as well as potentially the American government be critical of Tesla for doing this at a time where it's maybe perceived as Elon Musk and the company really trying to make a bigger push in China because they recognize how big of a market it could be for electric vehicles. But maybe Elon Musk and Tesla are willing to turn a blind eye to some of these alleged human rights atrocities that uh, you know uh, people talk about in the region. Now, you wonder if that's going to come back to bite him at some other time. Uh, that's for another discussion. But I, I do want to talk about another point, because while Tesla continues to do business in Xinjiang, 
other companies are actually pulling their products that have been sourced from that region. They're pulling them off their shelves. Yeah, Sam's Club, a subsidiary of the uh, retail giant Walmart, has had some issues and has come under fire in China for pulling some products from that region. People at Walmart haven't really given a good explanation. One person at a Sam's Club there did tell someone from CNN Business that it's really more about supply chain issues and inventory management. But uh, you know, the Chinese government is not buying that at all, calling the decision to pull some of these products from that region, you know, you know, an example of stupidity and short-sightedness. So clearly, Beijing is not happy with Walmart, and it'll be interesting to see what Walmart winds up doing as a result. You've had, had companies such as Intel and others in the past, just recently, that have had to apologize for making comments about the uh, you know Xinjiang region and not being having some uh, you know supplies from that area, and that has put them under fire from the uh, government in China. And obviously, most Western companies that are doing business in China want to stay there because it's such a lucrative, rapidly growing market. Yeah, all right. We will continue to follow this story along with you, Paula Monica. Thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. With one month to go until the Beijing Winter Olympics, China is testing a COVID containment program for Olympic staff. Starting today, workers from overseas will have to undergo daily testing and will be subject to movement restrictions. Trains will also have designated carriages for them, and venues will begin to enforce vaccination policies. All this comes as China is fighting to contain fresh COVID outbreaks. Our Christy Lu Stout has the details. The Beijing Winter Olympics is now only one month away and the bubble has begun. The Games will be held in a bubble or closed loop system around Beijing, covering all stadiums, venues and accommodations. And throughout the Games, all athletes and participants will be required to stay inside the bubble and undergo daily COVID-19 testing. And according to The Global Times, the pre-game bubble officially starts today for all overseas Olympic personnel. And a cross-province high-speed train has divided carriages to separate Olympic participants from ordinary passengers. Now, this is critical because the Winter Games coincides with the Lunar New Year Festival. This is a time when hundreds of millions of people travel home for family reunions. Uh, The Winter Games will be a very big test of China's zero COVID control measures, which will be difficult given the highly infectious nature of the Omicron variant. China has only reported a handful of Omicron cases, and experts say people in China are vulnerable because of their lack of exposure to the variant, the lower efficacy of China's homegrown vaccines, and the limits of China's zero COVID policy. The problem is not the vaccine, right? It's the policy, right? It's because under the zero tolerance uh, policy, right, even the best vaccines, you know, cannot fulfill the objectives, you know, set by the government. Public patience for China's zero COVID policy is also being pushed to the limit. In the northern city of Xi'an, case numbers may be falling, but desperation there is growing as a citywide lockdown enters its 13th day, with residents forbidden to leave their homes unless it's for a COVID test. Chinese social media has been inundated with cries for help and for food. On Weibo, the hashtag grocery shopping in Xi'an is difficult has been viewed over 420 million times. Christy Lou Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Lawyers for 
Britain's Prince Andrew will today ask a New York judge to dismiss a sex abuse lawsuit by Virginia Jeffrey. She alleges the prince had sex with her when she was underage after Jeffrey Epstein trafficked her. On Monday, it was made public that Epstein paid Jeffrey $500,000 in a 2009 settlement to drop her case against him without admitting liability or fault. A severe winter storm has caused serious traffic disruptions in the U.S. after dumping several inches of snow. In the state of Virginia, drivers had have been stranded on a major highway since Monday. Officials say they're trying to clear the route and remove the trapped cars. Coming up on First Move, COVID, cancellations and more flight chaos. We'll speak with the CEO of Airlines UK about the many challenges of the year ahead. And a picture may be worth a thousand words, but some images can leave us speechless. I'll be joined by the CEO of Getty Images, whose photographers are capturing the world through a lens. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are set to open higher this Tuesday. Both the S&P 500 and the Dow notched up record closes Monday in the first session of the new year. And that trend looks set to continue. Investors betting that the COVID-19 variant Omicron is no match for the U.S. recovery. COVID infections are continuing to cause massive disruption for the airline industry as it deals with sick outs and staff shortages. More than 3,000 flights have already been canceled today, more than 1,000 of which were to, from, or within the U.S. Thousands of other passengers are facing delays, with winter weather remaining a factor in the U.S. Tim Alderslade is the CEO of Airlines UK, and he joins us with more on the challenges the industry is facing. Great to have you with us. And from what I could read and see, the challenges are just building and building. But I want to focus for a minute on the challenge for the British aviation industry, uh, the COVID testing rules in England. Talk us through what the rules are and when you expect to see a change here and why it's important. Yes, certainly. So, I mean, it's clearly been a devastating uh, 18 months or so for British uh, aviation. Um, we are significantly behind our European uh, competitors and, and also the US who have uh, eased restrictions a lot quicker than here in the UK. So to come into the UK, you have to take a pre-departure uh, test up to two days before you travel um, into this country. You also then have to take a day two PCR test uh, and self-isolate until you get a negative uh, result. So we're the only major economy that requires both a pre-departure test and also an arrivals uh, test. And as a result of that, we're seeing uh, a pretty devastating impact in terms of bookings over the Christmas and the New Year period, which is up to 30% of bookings for the for the year. Um, so government is looking at these restrictions uh, in a meeting tomorrow. And I think our message to, to ministers is that given the Omicron, um, the severity is not as uh, you know severe as, as we feared, and also so we have uh, major community transmission here in the UK, up to 90% of cases are now down to Omicron. Um, you know, the variant is here, the virus is here. And so we do not see the need for such severe travel restrictions, which were um, emergency restrictions. They were brought in um, once we knew about Omicron. We now know it's here in, in, in major numbers. And so uh, these restrictions on travel actually don't really aid uh, the government's public health uh, efforts. And so they should be removed fairly quickly. 
what damage has this testing requirement already done to the British aviation industry and to the wider economy as well? Well, we look at the the booking period for for Christmas and the New Year. That's when people start to think about their summer holidays, their 2022 travel. Um, And really, it's just a real dampener on consumer confidence because people will know that they have these or could have these restrictions in place. We're seeing a significant number of cancellations in particular over Christmas um, and people are delaying their, their bookings until they've got greater clarity as to what is happening with uh, with these current restrictions. If you look at um, the data over the last two years, um, inbound travel and domestic uh, tourism, the impact has been over £140 billion as a result of the various travel restrictions we've seen since March 2020. And I think the frustration in the sector is that we always uh, said that we would use the red list, uh, the government's red list, mm-hmm. uh, to deal with variants of concern. Um, when Omicron first hit, uh, the government introduced uh, PCR testing at day two, and then it introduced pre-departure testing. And I think the concern for the sector is that every time we get a variant of concern, and we know that variants will crop up, that we automatically draw draw down the uh, the bridge and uh, and introduce these kind of restrictive uh, travel measures that that actually don't um, have a huge impact in terms of uh, stopping variants coming into the country. Now you're advocating for more economic support from the government for the aviation industry. Where does the call for a new package of help, uh, economic help, stand at this point? Well, I think we know that the Treasury here in the UK, um, you know, they see that the way to save aviation is to allow it to trade. Um, You know, we don't want economic support. We don't want a bailout. We want to be able to trade our way out of this. Um, We've lost around six billion uh, pounds in terms of uh, debt. Uh, We've taken on six billion in terms of debt from government and also from uh, the private markets. We want to pay that back because we want to invest uh, in new aircraft and new sustainable technologies. Um, But if we're not able to uh, get back to where we were in 2019. Um, and uh, at the back end of last year, we were around 60% down on flights compared to 2019. We're mm-hmm. simply not going to be able to replenish those balance sheets. And so we will require some form of economic uh, support from, from the Chancellor, um, probably uh, elements of grants. We, we cannot continue to borrow money uh, and get further and further into debt. Um, the government can also help in terms of co- uh, testing costs. Um, we are requiring people to pay for their own testing when they come into the UK, both in terms of pre-departure and, and on arrival. So that's a small uh, a small win and something the Chancellor could do to help travellers and help the sector. But we want to trade our way out of this and we want to get back to serving passengers and delivering all the good things about aviation and the connectivity that it delivers. Very quickly, I want to get your reaction to Heathrow Airport uh, charging passengers 50, a 50% increase in charges if they fly into the airport there. Well, I think we, we we are, you know, we on record as being uh, very very opposed to these sorts of uh, egregious, uh, uh, you know, increases in in charges. Um, airlines have fallen back on their investors um, to bail them out over the past eighteen months. They have not asked passengers to subsidise uh, the costs of uh, coronavirus. As I said, six billion pounds of of loans have been absorbed, and we think Heathrow, with their uh, you know very very wealthy shareholders and backers, should do the same. Okay, Tim Alderslade, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. And you're watching First Move. The market open is next. 
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and we've had the opening bell already. Both the S&P 500 and the Dow seeing record closes on Monday, and now stocks across the board with their opening higher on the second trading day of the year. One of the stocks to watch this session is Apple, the tech giant briefly hitting a $3 trillion valuation yesterday. Will we see that feat repeated? After a series of major cyber attacks last year, including ransomware attacks on the Colonial Pipeline and the U.S. meat producer JBS, and with more people working remotely than ever before, global cybersecurity has never been more important. So what are the threats to watch for this year? Joining us now, the CEO and co-founder of CrowdStrike, George Kurtz. George, great to see you. Grateful for your time today. Thank you. Great to be here. It seems like during the pandemic, we've really seen a surge in ransomware attacks. Um, what, to what do you attribute this rise of activity, activity to? It's success. It really is about the, uh, the success and the ease of being able to uh, plant ransomware, detonate ransomware, and most importantly, extract money out of uh, corporations uh, to the tune of millions of dollars with very little risk to the cybercrime actors. And it looks like, you know, 2022, at least for the cyber world, is starting with with a crisis with the Log4j vulnerability. Talk with me about what this is and how serious of a threat this is. Well, Log4j is a common uh, piece of software that's used by many infrastructure uh, websites. So the websites that we all use behind the scenes typically use this piece of software. And there was a vulnerability that was actually found in it. Um, that was very easy to exploit. So what we've seen is one is just a, a patching frenzy by by corporations trying to uh, identify these vulnerabilities which are critical and patch them before the adversaries are able to, to exploit them. And we've seen uh, adversaries from China and Iran and others uh, exploiting actively exploiting these vulnerabilities, which makes it very easy to get into these infrastructure uh, uh, system. So overall, it was um, a very, very busy uh, period of time at the end of the year for companies to try to identify and patch those, which is, again, wh- one of the things that we focus on at CrowdStrike is identifying these vulnerabilities and making sure that uh, corporations can uh, patch them and keep themselves safe. Now, I know you deal with big companies, big corporations, but I'd imagine you can, you know, give some advice to regular people on what they can do to beef up uh, you know, their own security on their own networks. What advice do you have? Well, sure. So uh, when we think about where we are today, it, it really is the extortion economy. So there are a couple things that, uh, you know, companies and people should be aware of. You know, one is ransomware, which we talked about. And two is is the extortion piece of it, uh, which is the stealing of data and then being able to uh, extract money out of that. We call that double extortion. And um, on the personal side, what we've seen a lot is extortion demands that are that are fake. So someone will get an email that says, hey, we've got access to your computer. We're going to detonate malware. We've got sensitive information unless you pay us. And a lot of times those are fake. So it's important for consumers to uh, make sure that they, they keep their passwords protected, uh, use a password manager with, with very secure passwords. Don't reuse passwords across different websites and, and organizations, which is the number one re- reason that we see consumers get uh, impacted as their passwords are compromised and they reuse them across sites. And be vigilant. If, see, if, you, if you see something that doesn't look right, um, you know, contact the company or go directly to the website. Don't click the link to try to get to a particular website. Go there directly and type it in your browser. Uh, and obviously, endpoint security, uh, which the business we're in, is uh, critically important to identify and prevent those pieces of malware from executing uh, across those systems. 
Do you think that companies and organizations get it yet? I mean, the importance of cybersecurity, where they're actually willing to spend money on it. I mean, there was a time where it wasn't a priority. Is it now a priority? Yeah, it's the number one priority for boardrooms right now. Uh, when we think about the impact of ransomware and and this double extortion where uh, data is being stolen, there's nothing more critical. Obviously, you have one piece, which is uh, ransomware is no longer just an annoyance where you have a computer that's infected and you have to pay to get it uh, decrypted. Uh, it can mm. be a an existential risk. It can take out an entire organization if their computers are effectively bricked because you can't use them. Uh, and the second piece then is when we think about all of the legislation, the regulatory requirements on data privacy, if data is extracted out of a company, um, there's massive fines. If we think about uh, you know, some of the regulations in Europe and other places, massive, massive penalties. So it is the number one item on any board. They're spending a lot of money on security. And for me, I don't think there's anything more critical to the digital economy than cybersecurity. Let's talk about artificial intelligence for a moment. I'm curious how AI is going to affect cybersecurity over the next few years. I mean, it's making everything faster, more automated. Obviously, the tools have to be more automate, automated to keep the threat out. So how do you see the industry evolving? And is this where you see the biggest opportunity? Well, it is a great opportunity. It's one of the things that we pioneered at CrowdStrike is being able to use artificial intelligence to identify uh, attacks that have never been seen before. Um, so, and that's worked very well. On the converse side, you have adversaries that are trying to use their own AI uh, to beat you know, systems that are out there. So it's a bit of a, a cat and mouse game. But uh, at the end of the day, if you have a massive amount of information that you can train your AI models, like we do at CrowdStrike, you can get great outcomes. And I think that's really important. So AI really is the future of, of security, uh, but it's only one element to it. And it's a very important element. I'm curious what the blind spots are that keep you up at night. Well, it's a, it's a very uh, evolving and fluid landscape. When we think about uh, the, the, the underground economy, you know, we, we talk about the extortion economy and the, 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 the digital economy, that uh, the black market, if you will. Um, you can pretty much get whatever you want. If you want to buy access to a particular company, you can buy that. If you want to buy ransomware as a service, you can buy that. Um, if you want to buy, uh, you know, information, private information on individuals, you can buy that as well. And you can all do that uh, very anonymously and uh, typically using crypto as a, as a form of currency uh, for the transaction. So it's all set up. It's very easy to use. And it happens uh, behind the scenes every day. And uh, what we see in the news is only the tip of the iceberg of what happens behind the scenes. Unfortunately. It's all about, is it all about staying one step ahead, huh? Well, you have to stay one step ahead, but there's also a time element. Uh, you know, any any company can have an incident, right? What you want to do is you want to make sure that incident doesn't turn into a breach. And uh, you want to be able to focus on being able to prevent as much as you can. But if, if there is an incident, if a password is compromised and you don't have two-factor authentication, uh, you want to be able to identify someone getting on the system. We call it the 11060 rule. Identify within one minute investigate within 10 and, uh, and triage and, and, you know, remediate within 60. And that really is best practice at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and time is your, your friend, right? So if you can identify it very quickly, you might have an incident, but doesn't turn into a breach. Okay. George Kurtz, CEO and co-founder of CrowdStrike. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. A developing story from the world of photography is next. The company that brought some of the most striking news images of the year will go public again in a SPAC merger. The CEO of Getty Images is next.
Welcome back. Some of the hardest hitting news images CNN broadcast on air come from one source. And you'll notice the caption saying where in the top right corner of your screen. Getty Images works with over 450,000 contributors around the world. It provides about 160,000 new images every year, as well as video and music content to media outlets and for commercial and creative purposes. Now Getty is set to become a public company once again in a SPAC deal, which values the company at nearly $5 billion. Craig Peters is the CEO, and he joins us now. Craig, great to see you. Great. Uh, thanks for having me and great to see you as well. Um, and thank you to CNN for being such a great customer. Oh, you got it. <laughs> so so talk about why uh, you decided to take the company public again uh, you know, via SPAC uh, and what you're going to do with the proceeds from your public debut or your, well, your second I, public debut. Well, I think, you know, first off, you know, why go public? You know, this is a great brand. It's a it's a great business. Um, we feel really um, good about our performance, our prospects, uh, and ultimately this transaction. Um, and uh, and so we, we're really proud to take the business back to the public markets where we believe it it rightly belongs. Um, you know, why SPAC? Um, you know, it really, it, it wasn't about SPAC. What we found with CC uh, Capital and, and Newberger Berman is our partners. And and they were willing to invest in behind this deal. This this deal comes with 875 million of committed capital uh, into the transaction, and it was that level of commitment and investment that we really focused in on uh, that made this transaction the right one for Getty Images. Um, ultimately, we'll use the the proceeds of this transaction to pay down debt and delever the business. Um, but um, we're really excited for mm -hmm. the transaction, and again, the committed capital that comes along with it. What happened during the pandemic as far as the impact? I mean, sports and entertainment events were canceled. Nothing to take pictures of. Well, that was true. Um, you know, but uh, they've come back. And I think, you know, what happens in, in times of crisis is I think people always look to the world of sport and entertainment as a, as a way to, to get away and, and, uh, and have some level of enjoyment. Um, so we've seen those, those events come back. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, people spend their time and energy, uh, you know, engaging with those events and ultimately with the content that we produce. Talk with me about where you see opportunities for growth for Getty Images. We see, we see growth from a number of vectors in this business, um, and we're excited for them. Um, you know, first and foremost, this is an in increasingly visual world. And, and at our core, at our at a core of our business, what do we do? We help businesses connect uh, and compete in that visual landscape. And so whether that's, you know, small businesses and, and how they need to compete through our iStock brand, or whether that's corporations as, as they struggle to how to, to have a presence across TikTok and Instagram and, and, and all the platforms that they need to be present on, um, we see just a huge amount of, of demand for our service. Uh, and then with the growth of video, um, increasingly, you know, being a, a, a medium in which not only the media uh, needs to, to produce, but corporations and businesses need to, to have a video presence. Um, you know, that's another core driver of this business. But we see a lot of growth opportunities across Getty Images. Where, where do NFTs fit into your future, Getty's future? Well, I think I, I think we see it as a as a long term opportunity for this business. We're unique in that Getty Images owns a lot of the intellectual property that it that it uh, distributes. Um, we have a huge archive. 
Um, and, and we fundamentally believe that that intellectual property can have value in mm-hmm. an NFT space. Mm-hmm. Um, but that'll be something that'll develop over the long term. Um, but we do believe as an intellectual property owner that that has uh, potential to produce revenue for the business over the long term. What makes a good picture? Did you hear my question, Craig? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. Oh, so I, I was quickly asking you, what do you think makes a good picture? What do I think makes a good picture? I, I think, you know, ultimately it's about emotion. Um, you know, whether you're capturing something that's going to be used in a marketing material or whether you're capturing something that's that's going to be on CNN, um, ultimately it needs to to grab the attention uh, of a user. And that's typically through the, the emotion uh, side of things, whether that's love or whether that's passion um, or whether that's, uh, you know, um, other emotions. It's typically through the emotional connection. Yeah, we can certainly feel things when we look at your pictures. Great talking with you, Craig Peters, Getty Images CEO. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, Richard Quest makes a New Year's resolution to get over his fear of heights. And what better way to do it than this? New York's new tourist attraction, just don't look down. <laughs> My colleague Richard Quest has reported some from some very strange places. And when he said he was popping outside our headquarters here in New York, we didn't realize he meant it literally. The climb is the city's latest tourist attraction, and it's not for the faint-hearted. In fact, if you are scared of heights, like I am, you may want to look anywhere but down. New York is back, and I've come to the top, to the apex, to do the climb. Off. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Whose idea was this? <laughs> Anita, how many feet up? We're 1,189 feet. 1,189 feet. Look at it. King of the world. I'm terrified of heights. My husband's behind me. What are you doing down there? I'm sorry, I'll catch up. It's just great. There you go. Chris. Yes. It, come on, it's... You said a night out on the town. I didn't realise this is what you meant. I told you, literally a night out on the town. I know that I'm tethered to the building in three or four places. And I know that I could pretty much go, oh, and nothing would happen. But I'm still scared. When they said, do the climb, I thought, eh, eh, I don't like heights, I won't enjoy it. But this is absolutely outstanding. The freedom, the of opportunity, the just, the wind. I'm starting to realize just how much we've all been through, how far we've come, how magnificent it is just to be here tonight to enjoy it. Oh, my goodness. No, I'm not doing the lean. No, I'll lean this wall. God, no, no, it's, it's too. The wind is. I'm 
It's amazing, but it's terrifying. There you go, bend your knees. There you go, all the way down. Then you're gonna stick your booty out. Stick your booty out. Yep, stick your butt out. Yep, yep. And then straighten those legs. Excellent. Yes, what? yes. I feel the wind's going to blow me off my feet. It's not going to blow you off your feet. Ah, no, no, no. It's not going to blow you off your feet. King! Why do I want to keep saying king of the world? Because you feel like king of the world up here. Not it's the cute. buildings, it's the life, it's the jobs, it's the people, it's the loves, it's the crime, it's the... It's every, you look down and it doesn't look no. real. And yet I know because I've lived here for so many years what's going on in everybody. It's just amazing. Just extraordinary. It's up to you, New York, New York. See, now I need to get out. There's something called the edge here at Hudson Yards where you just walk in this glass enclosed thing and you can look down. Even that scares me. But what they just did, woof. I was shaking here and sweating. And by the way, the other guy that you saw, that was Chris Pepper, um, his producer, who looks pretty scared. <laughs> Finally, on first move, I know Richard loved them. And frankly, so did I. But the tech world uh, is finally moving on from the old school BlackBerry. From today on, the company is ending support for the classic non-Android version of the device, rendering those old handsets useless. What was a status symbol in the 1990s? was eventually defeated by the iPhone, which went on to drive Apple's market value to $3 trillion and condemn the BlackBerry to the back of the kitchen drawer. Or just use it as a hockey puck. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Allison Kosick. Thanks for watching and joining us. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.